the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition and you, that you have handed down, and you, do, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called, to the, called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For, with, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee. 
and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephpatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Awesome. Hey, this is God's word, and we're going to pray to ask God to help us understand it. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, that we can gather here this morning and encourage one another. We pray, Lord, that as you speak to us, that we would hear your words and that we would be changed by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where do you go to find your self-worth? Where do you turn to find your value? It's interesting, I was reading an article this week that kind of was, I think, representative of where our world turns to find value. And uh, the article was talking about some parents who took their kid to a swimming race. And as they took their boy to this swimming race, uh, the boy went over to join in into this race, and the person that was running the race said to the boy and, and to the whole group there, before we start, I just want to let you know that you're all winners. Now, the parents laughed. And the boy overheard them laughing, and he said, why are you laughing? And they said to him, because you're not all winners, only the one who wins is the winner. Now, whether or not you agree with the parents here and their decision to talk to their kids about this or the swimming pool, you can see what they're getting at here, right? They're trying to help kids see that they're valued. It's the same reason that uh, in the early years, everyone gets a ribbon for running the cross-country. It's the same reason when you play soccer in like under sixes to twelves, everyone gets a trophy. It's because it wants to build value and importance into kids to help them see and help them have a good sense of self-worth. The problem is though, as we move on from these things, the ribbons stop and the trophies stop coming. And so we're stuck in this space of kind of looking for value elsewhere. Now, it's interesting, one place where our culture has landed to try and find value or give ourselves a, self, a sense of self-worth, and it's in comparisons. So instead of looking inwardly, we just compare ourselves to others. So I don't know if you've felt this before, but you can jump on social media and within moments feel better or worse about yourself depending on what you just looked at. Right? Now, now, it doesn't just happen online, although it does. It happens in conversation as well. If you've ever had that experience where you've been talking to someone and within moments of that conversation, you can feel worse about yourself because you, know, you haven't achieved something, your kids are more naughty than those kids, whatever it is, right, in that moment. Then as the conversation goes, you start to feel better about yourself because that person has something wrong going on in their lives. And then it finishes with the fact that now you feel terrible about yourself because, you know, they just, you know, bought a home or something like that, right? We, we compare ourselves in this world. This is where we kind of find value, right? And so the ribbons stop and then we just start to compare ourselves with each other. And the whole question of where we have value or where we find value or how we have a good sense of self-worth is just really confusing, 
In fact, culturally, it's just weird where we land and how we have self-worth, how we have value. It can change whether or not we have a good day, whether or not we talk to someone, or whether or not we jump online. So, so the question this morning is, how can we have this good sense of our self-worth? How can we have a good sense of our self-value, of our true value, or is it just something that's going to change and shift depending on the day that we have? Is it even possible that we can have a sense of worth and a sense of value that isn't going to change because of external things around me? Well, what we're going to do today is, unfortunately, not give ribbons out on the way to morning tea. Right? That's not going to happen. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to open up the Bible and we're going to see what God says about us. And what we're ultimately going to see is that God is the one who gives us value. And if we can grasp that, that's the only sure thing that's going to help us move forward in our lives uh, as we think about this question. So it's in uh, our Bibles there. It'll be on the screen. We pick this story up. We pick the narrative up where Mark left off last week in chapter 7, verse 1. This is how he continues. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless their hands a ceremony, uh, unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Where do we turn to find our value? Well, Mark's going to show us that through this passage here, but as he shows us that, he's not going to show us by specifically telling us. Instead, he's going to walk us through some people and their stories and where they find their value. And here we meet a group of people whose self-worth is through the roof. Right? They think that they are God's gift to humanity. They think they are amazing and they have a great sense of their self-worth. They think they're really valuable and it's the religious leaders it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They think they are amazing. And the reason is important here. They think they are good because of what they do externally. Right? We, we see this in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They think they are valuable because of what they do. Right? See, these religious leaders were all about rules. Right? Just sound like some of the funnest people to hang out with. God had a few rules and they made many rules. Right? Doesn't that just sound like if you had a free weekend, these are the guys you want to hang out with? Just the people that make rules upon rules. This was them. This is what they did. Right? That was their job. And they thought because they could follow these rules and enforce these rules, they were valuable. Right? They were good. That's where their sense, you can see it in what they did. That's where their worth is. That's where their value is. And so these rules became something for them that they were defined by. Right? So what we see then is how this plays out with the disciples. When they see the disciples, right, they start freaking out because the disciples are eating without washing their hands. Now, now we've got to see here, it's not just because they were kind of scared of germs, this isn't the feeling that you get when you see someone coming out of the bathroom and you're pretty sure they didn't wash their hands. That's not what's going on here. The alarm bells are going off, not because they're scared of germs, but because in and of their traditions, their extra rules, the disciples had just fallen short. 
The disciples were flawed. They were broken. In fact, as they're eating with unclean hands or dirty hands without doing the ceremonial washing, they say these guys are defiled. Now, there's a few things here we've got to understand. Firstly, this idea of being defiled. In the Old Testament, it's the idea of kind of being different, separated from God, unclean, right? It meant that because we were defiled, we can't have a relationship with God. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of the things that we have done, we're separated from God. And so, right, this is the idea. We're separated from God. We can't have a relationship with God. And so we're in line to face his judgment. Okay, so what the Pharisees are saying here, because you didn't wash your hands, you're here. You're defiled. You're unclean. You're in that space facing judgment, facing the wrath of God. Okay, now it's, it's curious and interesting that they actually say this. Because in the Old Testament, you didn't have to ceremonially wash your hands that much. Right? In the, in the Old Testament. In fact, this only happened twice. One of them is when the priests had to ceremonially wash their hands before they went into the tabernacle. And the idea was that they needed to be clean before coming into the presence of God. Okay, that was kind of the picture. So you've got this in God's law, right? The, the few rules. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, make many rules and add on top of that. And they kind of think, well, if the priests have to do it, we're going to wash everything. They ceremonially wash their hands, the kettles, the cups, the jugs, you name it. They're ceremonially washing it because their idea is, you know, we've got to keep these rules. This is what it means to be clean before God. So here in this space, they see the disciples eating without washing their hands properly, like this ceremonially, uh, ceremonial washing, and they say they're now defiled. Before God, they're separated from God. Now, now, essentially what they're saying in this moment is the disciples are flawed, right? Before God, their value has diminished, and before people, they've lost their kind of sense of self-worth. Because of what they've done, they're defiled, right? They're, they're, there's a problem with them now. Their value has decreased. So how's Jesus going to respond to them? How's he going to respond to these Pharisees? Well, he tears them apart. We see this from verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, and you are no longer, uh, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. They're saying of Jesus' disciples here, because they didn't eat with a washing of ceremonial washing, that they are unclean, that they're defiled, separated from God. Jesus responds to them in this moment, and he rips them apart, and he says, there's two problems here with your thinking. Okay, the first problem is with your traditions. The second is with what you think defiles. So firstly, with their traditions, right? We remember they took a few rules and they made many rules. And Jesus says, because of these many rules, 
Because of these traditions, you have moved so far away from what God originally said that now your traditions no longer have anything to do with God. So you see that there, right? He calls them hypocrites. In verse 7, he says that. This is merely human teaching, right? You might have had the intention to be God's teachers, but now you're just speaking human stuff. This has nothing to do with God. Their traditions, their rules had moved so far away from what God had originally planned that they'd kind of lost the point altogether. So it's kind of like this. Uh, A few years ago, I lived with my brother and he just bought a house and we were both single guys living in this house and he didn't have any furniture in this house. So we would watch the TV and play Xbox sitting on the floor. The day that he bought a couch was still one of the best days of my... No, but it was good, right, when he bought a couch. It was a great day uh, that he got a couch, but it was an expensive couch, and so naturally, when you spend a lot of money on something, you're paranoid about it, and you really want to look after it. So what happened was, the rule in our house was, if I wanted to sit on the couch, I needed to use a towel. Now, I'm okay with that, because it's his couch, right? He bought the couch. I'm okay with sitting there with a towel, Um, It's better than sitting on the floor, so that's fine. Now, if you know single guys that live out of home, they don't have cupboards full of towels. You have two towels, one you're using, and normally the other one is at the bottom of your laundry basket. So this was a miracle in and of itself that he had a spare towel that I could use for this couch. Now, a few weeks passed, and I came home, and he needed his second towel. He needed it. So I thought, great, I can sit on the couch without a towel. But when he came home, he told me what the rule was. No towel, no couch. So I was back sitting on the floor. His rules in place to protect his couch had gotten so in the way of what the couch was originally intended for that he may as well, I mean, at least from my perspective, not have bought a couch. Now, now this is essentially what the Pharisees and the religious leaders have done here because their rules have gotten in the way of what originally was intended. God's law wasn't meant to cripple and crush. The, The Old Testament law wasn't meant to cripple God's people and restrict God's people. It was given to them so they could flourish. It was given to them for their good. Right, It was for their good. It was originally meant for that. But the the Pharisees and the religious leaders come along and they make these rules on top of rules so that their traditions, which were crippling and crushing, meant that they'd moved so far from God's law that there may not have been God's law in the first place. Right? They didn't need that in the first place. Their rules, their traditions had gotten in the way. And so Jesus says that up front, doesn't he? He says, your traditions, I mean, they're they're so far, they're human teachings. They have nothing to do with God. And so the first problem is with their traditions. The Old Testament didn't say before you eat, you need to ceremonially wash your hands. Didn't say that, right? But they make that. So Jesus says, there's a problem with your traditions. There's a problem with your rules here. But the second problem here with what they say to him, uh, what the Pharisees say, is with what they think defiles. Okay, so, so they say it's what you do that defiles. Okay, your actions have the ability to defile you. But what Jesus is about to say here is this, and it's really important that we see this. Jesus is about to say your actions don't make you who you are. Your actions reveal who you are. 
Your actions don't make you who you are. Your external stuff doesn't make you who you are. It simply reveals who you are. And what Jesus is about to say is that our actions reveal the fact that internally we have flawed, broken, defiled hearts. Okay, so, so this is what Jesus says. So he goes on in verse 14. He says, listen to me. Everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Jesus replied, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, into the center of who they are, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, which even that little uh, bracketed sentence there that Mark is telling us is important. But he went on in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, out of the center of a person, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Can you see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying your external actions don't make you who you are. Your external things, what you get up to, that it doesn't make you who you are. It simply reveals who you are. It shows what deep down is lying within all of us. And then Jesus goes on to list them, right? And he goes on to list all these 12 things which could be summed up in the evil thoughts section. Okay, so we're going to go on this journey here this morning. Our joy here, six actions, six attitudes. If we have any of this at any point in our life, it shows that deep down there's a problem with our heart. Okay, so join me as we work through this. The first thing that Jesus says sexual immorality. Okay, This is the idea of the first action. So six actions, first and foremost. The first one is sexual immorality. This is anything outside of God's design in marriage. Anything a single person does, anything a dating couple does, anything anyone does sexually in an action outside of marriage. Number two, theft. I don't think it's, I don't think we should just be thinking stealing cars, but for us, maybe more closer to home is stealing things like insurance or downloading movies and TV shows and music or maybe borrowing someone's login and password when it's just meant for family, but we kind of extend that and go family and friends. Second, theft. Third, murder. Self-explanatory there. Fourth, adultery. This is a thought or action about someone who's not our husband or wife or is someone else's husband or wife. Fifth, Greed, not just the attitude of greed, but the action to take more than we need at the cost of others. And sixth, malice. This is the idea of like deliberate wickedness or, or deliberately causing someone pain, right? Whether it's physical or emotional, whether it's simply because we want to or because they did it to us first. Okay, so six actions. Now already... As we hear those actions, I think some of us should be feeling a little bit on edge here because that describes me. But then Jesus takes this a step further and goes, it's not just six actions, but six attitudes. So deceit. 
the idea of deceiving someone about something that's true and, and we kind of deceive them to make them think it's not true, whether it's about ourselves or something else or the other way around. Uh, lewdness, this is the idea of sensuality or this over-the-top sexuality where I can't control my sexual desires. Third, envy. This is the idea, interestingly enough, I think in the Old Testament of stinginess. But taking it a step further, this begrudging jealousy. When you see what other people have, how, what's your reaction in that moment? When, when you see someone else have something that you want, how do you act in that moment? Fourthly, slander. The attitude that other people have a low value and a low self-worth, and so we slander them, and we slander who God made in that moment. Fifth, arrogance. That attitude that I am more valuable than other people, that, that my self-worth stands above others, and that I am extremely valuable, and then finally folly. This isn't just making dumb decisions. This is anything, anything spiritually or physically, any decision that we make that is just insensitive to the fact that God is king and, is, and should be the center of our lives. So Jesus says these six actions and these six attitudes, and then the key verse there is verse 23, all these evils come from inside a person and defile a person. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, can you see how big what Jesus is saying here is? It's not external actions that make us who we are. It simply reveals the fact that deep down, I am deeply flawed. Right? See, as we look at this list, Jesus is saying from the same place comes murder and adultery and envy and greed. So let's think about this and feel the weight of this. When you see someone who is a murderer or you hear news about a pedophile or someone who causes abuse, in that moment we feel horrible towards them and so we should in that space, right? Because what they did is terrible. But what Jesus is saying is that what lies within me is exactly the same thing. A broken and flawed heart. A defiled heart, a heart that's separated from God and a heart that is capable of the worst kinds of evil. What Jesus is saying here is, is actually bigger than what the Pharisees said. It's not simply what you do that defiles you. What you do reveals the fact that you are extremely, that I am extremely broken. So then the question is, what do we do with this, right? Are we supposed to just live in this sense of value, right? The sense that I'm flawed and broken and more flawed and more broken than I even want to admit. I mean, where do we go to get our sense of self-worth? Where do we go to get our sense of self-esteem up or our value up? Well, we can learn from the Pharisees here and we should learn from the Pharisees here because you can see where the Pharisees turn to get their sense of worth, right? It was externally. In fact, specifically for these religious leaders, they turned to religion. Their idea was, if we can just do enough stuff, if we can be the good Christian person, then we will be good enough. Go to church, you know, well, for them, go to synagogue, obey all these extra rules, and that way I will be good enough and God will see me as good enough. But there's a big problem with what the Pharisees are doing. They're not actually dealing with the problem, and where they're turning to doesn't deliver. They're not dealing with the problem. They're not dealing with the internal problem. They're going to external to fix something that only can be fixed internally. So again, it's kind of like this. Um, I did 
hospitality at school in grade 11 and 12. And I remember uh, at one class, they were teaching us about food safety, and the class was on, specifically was on a certain type of mold. Now, this mold, they were saying that um, you need to make sure that when you see this mold, now I can't remember exactly what it was or the context really, um, but they said this certain type of mold, you've got to be careful, you can't just cut it off, you've got to throw the whole thing out. Now, to illustrate this point, they told us this story of this family who had this minced dish one night. And uh, whoever it was went to the fridge and pulled out the pasta sauce. And in the pasta sauce, there was mold on the top of it. So what they did was, instead of doing what I would do, which is throw anything out that remotely looks like it's gone out of date, they just cut the mold off and put the pasta sauce in and then ate it. Now, the reason they used this story to illustrate this point was because it was a tragedy where the family actually died from food poisoning for using this pasta sauce. Now, this is what happens, right? You can't just, and this is the message that they were telling us, you can't just cut off the mold. It localizes in one spot, but it's showing you that the whole thing's gone off, right? The whole pasta sauce in that moment has gone rank. It's just localized in a little spot. So if you cut off the mold, yeah, it might look good, right? It might look like it's fine, but you haven't actually dealt with the problem, and ultimately, it's still going to kill you. Now, this is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders are doing. They are externally trying to fix a problem that can't be dealt by working harder. The solution can't be found by simply working harder and doing more stuff. It doesn't deal with the problem. And this is why Jesus tears them apart. He says, you hypocrites. He says, you haven't in this moment, you haven't actually dealt with the problem. And on top of that, right, we see later on, Jesus will call Jesus will call them whitewashed tombs to show that on the outside they're clean, but inside they've been rotting away. Inside there is death still there. Jesus shows us in this moment that the Pharisees can't deal with the problem by going external. They can't deal with the problem by simply working harder. Now, as we see this, as we see what the Pharisees did here in this moment, I think it's easy to go, yeah, how could they think that? How could they think that going external would deal with the problem internally? But the issue for us is that we can do this as well. It's not just the Pharisees that turn to religion to fix their problem. It's not just them that do that. We can go to our external efforts as well to try and fix something inward. So we too can turn to religion. We can come to church We can do the Christian thing. We can pretend like we're good enough and think that we're good enough. And because we do this religion thing, at the end of the day, we think, before God, I must be good enough. My good outweighs my bad, and ultimately, I'm going to be good enough. But if we turn to religion and our actions in this space to deal with the problem, it never deals with the problem, and it doesn't deliver. But we can turn to other things as well. We can turn to politics, Right? Maybe this is your thing where we turn to politics. And you, say, and, and you think, yeah, we are flawed, we are broken, but if we just had the correct political party in place, if we just had the correct leader in place, then we would be good. We'd be good enough if we could just get kind of that external thing right, the politics right, or closer to home. We can turn closer to home for this. We can turn to our looks for this where we know that deep down I don't feel good enough and so I just want to look good enough. 
So we go to the gym and we work really hard so that our bodies look good. So on the surface, it seems like we've got everything together where deep down we know that we don't. We can work on our looks, our external. We can just, yes, I want to look good enough. I want to be good enough. And so that if I look good enough, then I feel good enough. Or we can turn to our work where we work hard and people can see us work hard and what we're producing, and so we find our value and our worth in our work, but ultimately it doesn't fix the problem and it doesn't deliver. Or finally, maybe none of these things right, apply to you. Maybe you turn to your kids, because this is something that we can do as well. We turn to our kids to give us our sense of worth and value, and so we ride them hard to be the perfect kid, because if they are, then I feel good enough, and then I am good enough, because my kids are good enough. Or we can just fake it. We can just wear a mask and pretend that we are good enough and smile, and when people ask us how we're going, we say, yeah, we're going pretty good. And we wear a mask, and ultimately we kind of get to the point where we're so good at it that we forget who we really are. We too can turn externally to fix the problem internally, but the problem is with that is if we turn externally, it's never actually dealing with the problem. It doesn't deal with the problem and it never delivers. If you turn to your kids, you will crush your kids and ultimately they will let you down. Your kids will let you down. You can turn to your work, but ultimately there will be weeks when you have bad weeks or eventually you retire and no longer have work, and it gets to the point where you realize that didn't deal with the problem and it didn't deliver. Or we can turn to religion like the Pharisees did. But if we do, it doesn't deal with the problem and it doesn't deliver. So the question then is again, right, in this space, where do we turn to deal with this problem? Are we just supposed to live in this perpetual cycle of I am terrible? I'm flawed, I'm broken, I'm not good enough, and deep down I am worse than I want to admit. Is that what I have to live in? Well, as we keep moving through Mark, what we see is that Mark shows us not specifically the answer, but he shows us two people who, like us, are deeply flawed. What we see as we finish up this passage is two people who are deeply flawed and in hopeless situations. So the first we see in a moment is the Syrian Phoenician woman. She is a woman who in that culture couldn't give a testimony, didn't have much worth in society or value in society, couldn't get a job. And on top of that, she's a Gentile woman. So according to the Jews, Gentiles had no value. No worth. For the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. In fact, Jesus will refer to her as a dog. So how do we see where we can turn in this moment? Well, let's pick this story up. Verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Okay, so you see this picture here, a woman with no value in society, Culturally, she didn't have a sense of self-worth. Here on top of that, she falls at Jesus' feet and begs him, please heal my daughter. She does what every mother would do. Begs Jesus in that moment to heal 
her daughter. How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds like he does in many places with a parable. Verse 27, he says, First let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, it is a parable, okay? And a parable was a story with a deeper meaning. So the picture that Jesus is getting at here is like what happens in your home if you have a dog. Um, and you eat dinner, and maybe you have some leftovers, and after you eat as a family, then you give the leftovers to your dog. Okay, that's the picture. But the, the deeper meaning of this story is that the, the Jews are the children of God. So Jesus is basically saying, and the Gentiles are the dogs, so Jesus is basically saying here, I've come to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles, and Gentiles were everyone who's not a Jew. I've come to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. Now, as he says this parable, I think as we read this, isn't there a sense within us that this is pretty rough from Jesus? Right? Isn't there a sense within us that wants to stand up and fight for this woman's value and worth? But how does she respond? How does she respond? Well, she says this, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What she's saying, ultimately, is this doesn't have to wait until the Jews have got this. You can give this to me now. Even the crumbs will be good enough. Now, notice she doesn't fight for her self-worth. She doesn't get offended in this moment. She doesn't stand up for herself and say, how dare you call me a dog? In some sense, culturally, I think she understands this, but instead she pleads on the goodness of Jesus and says, even the crumbs will be enough. And now what we see too in this woman is the first woman in Mark who actually understands a parable. That's kind of interesting. Jesus has spoken in parables throughout this and no one gets what Jesus is saying, but here this woman does. Jesus likes the reply, heals her daughter, and then she goes home and finds the demon gone. Now, as we read this story, the biggest thing of this story is not that the demon left the girl. Right? That's big, really big. No other teacher, I mean, this is kind of what we looked at the first week of this series. No other teacher can do this. No, no one else can do this. Right? But that's not the biggest thing of this story. The biggest thing that Mark wants to show us is where flawed, broken people turn. And it's not inward. It's not to our own external actions. Right? It's not to me. It's not to working harder. Instead, it's to Jesus. Then we see it again through the next man. And this man, like the woman before him, was equally socially worthless in his society didn't have much value. He was a mute man, deaf and couldn't speak. So culturally here, he didn't have much value in society. He was a Gentile as well. So in some ways, he is an outcast to the outcasts. This is a man who would have been mocked his whole life and humiliated his whole life and shamed his whole life. And here in this next bit, what we see is some people come up to Jesus and say, can you put your hands on this man and heal him? Now, what they're asking in that moment is Jesus to do something the law told them not to do. Put your hand on a Gentile. They weren't allowed to do that. So what does Jesus do? Well, we see from verse 33. He takes the man aside, away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ear. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephaphtha, which means be opened. 
At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Now see this here, okay? This man was someone who's been humiliated his whole life, mocked his whole life, shamed his whole life. When Jesus addresses him, he doesn't humiliate him in front of the crowds. He doesn't mock him in front of the crowds. Instead, he takes them away out of the presence of the crowds to heal him. And he puts his hands on this man, his fingers in his ear, and then he touches his tongue, which is a bit strange, except we've got to remember this is a deaf man, right? He can't hear. So what Jesus is doing here is two things. One, showing him affection by actually touching him. And two, showing him what he's about to do. Jesus sighs, again, something that you could see. And then heals this man. But again, the biggest thing in this story is not that Jesus healed this man. right? And if, we've, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've seen this. I mean, at the end of the last chapter, Jesus healed everyone. But we didn't hear their stories. So how come we hear this one? Well, it's because the biggest thing is not that he healed this man. The biggest thing that Mark is showing us is where flawed people go to deal with the internal problems of our hearts. It's not to our works. It's not to working harder. You see this here. I mean, this deaf man couldn't have worked hard enough to heal his deafness. Instead, where we turn is to Jesus. And this here is the message of this passage and the message of the Bible of where broken and flawed people go to find our hope. It's not to our actions, instead it's to Jesus. See, if we think about it, if our actions reveal who we are, because of who I am and because of what I've done in my life, I deserve to be humiliated. I deserve to be mocked. I deserve to be shamed for what I've done in my life. I deserve to pay for what I've done because I am a deeply flawed person. But Jesus, in Jesus, what we find is someone who doesn't humiliate us. He doesn't mock us. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't reject us and he doesn't make us pay. Instead, what we see in Jesus is something beautiful. As we keep reading through Mark, what we see is he himself was humiliated for us. He was rejected instead of us. He took our place and as he did on the cross, he was shamed in front of crowds, because of us. And in that moment, Jesus took our defilement. Jesus took our sin. Jesus took my brokenness and he placed it on his shoulders so that I could be clean. This is the message of the Bible. This is the message that we have and the hope that we have. It's this, it's that I am deeply flawed. I am deeply broken. But at the exact same time, I am deeply loved and deeply accepted. The message of the Bible is that I am flawed and I am broken more than I would like to admit. But at the exact same time, in Jesus, I am more loved and more accepted than I ever dreamed of. This is the hope that we have. This is the message of Mark and the message of the Bible. And so what we see that today, this means so much for all of us. If you're here today and you've already put your trust in Jesus, then what this means is that this is a truth that we can't afford to let go of. The fact that I am deeply flawed, but my value comes not from what I do, it comes from the fact that Jesus loves me. This is a truth that we can't afford to let go of. 
Because as we live in this world, what we find is that we will get the message that you need to find your value through what you do. It's what the world's going to tell you. Your value and your worth comes from your ability to work harder, to look good, to be the specific type of person that you need to be. But this message is exhausting and it doesn't deliver on the promise. But the message of the Bible is that our value and our worth doesn't come from what we do. I am flawed. I am broken, but in Jesus, I am deeply loved. So what this means for us, if we put our trust in Jesus, is that we can't find our value in what we do. You can't afford to find your value in your kids. It won't deliver and you'll crush them. You can't afford to find your value in your work because it won't deliver and it will crush you. We can't find our value in our religion, in our ability to do stuff, to work harder or wear a mask. Our value comes from the fact that, yes, I'm flawed, but at the exact same time, I'm deeply loved. Now, maybe for some of us this morning, as we think about our lives, and even in this last week, there have been things that crushed us. And maybe because it's, we found our value in that or our worth in that. And so this morning, we need to come back to the fact, the truth that I am flawed, but I am loved. But for some of us, we're here today and we haven't put our trust in Jesus. And so this morning, we hope that you can see the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that you're among friends here and you're not good enough. And you can't save yourself. And no efforts that you do will ever make you good enough. But the message of the Bible is that we can come to Jesus. You can throw yourself on Jesus. Him who's not going to humiliate you. He's not going to mock you. He's not going to shame you for what you've been up to. Instead, as we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, what we see is someone who was humiliated, who was shamed, who was mocked for us. And when we trust in Jesus, we can know for sure that we are loved and that our deep problem has been dealt with. And this morning, we'd like to give you a moment to actually think about this. In fact, we'd like to give you a chance, if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus this morning, to make this step and to make this commitment. For some of us here today, this has been a, a process over a little while. For some of us, we're kind of here randomly today, but we'd love to give you a chance to actually put your trust in Jesus for the first time. And so what we're going to do in a moment is I'm going to say a prayer, and I want to encourage you, if this is you here this morning, in fact, maybe this would be good for all of us to do inwardly anyway, I'm going to say a prayer. If this is you for the first time here this morning, I want to encourage you to say these words inwardly to God after me as I say these words. And this, all this is doing, right? I'm not going to say any mystical things here. There's nothing special about my words. It's just a, a commitment to follow Jesus. And then we're going to do something a little bit different that we haven't done before. We're actually going to give you a chance to commit, in uh, not in front of everyone, but a commit to following Jesus. See, following Jesus is not just one decision, it's a lifelong thing. And if this is you here this morning, then we would love to walk with you to help you see what this looks like. So, in, uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask that for a moment we keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And I'm going to ask that if this was you here this morning for the first time to raise your hands. Right? There's going to be a few of us who are going to look because we want to pray with you. We want to help you see your value and your worth before God, and we want to help you see what this looks like for the rest of your life. And then we're going to pray again, 
right? I'll pray again and then we'll sing together. So that's where we're going. If you're here this morning and you'd like to commit to following Jesus in response to his word, then I'm going to pray some words and I want to encourage you to pray these words. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, your word tells me that I'm not good enough and that I can't do anything to be good enough. But Jesus, you are good enough and you died and rose again for me. So please forgive me and help me to trust you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to ask here for a moment that it, you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And if this was you here this morning that made this decision for the first time, then we would love to pray with you and help you. So if you can raise your hand while all the eyes are bowed, heads are closed and the eyes are, eyes are, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you can raise your hand, we'd love to see you and pray with you. Let's pray. God, we celebrate that we aren't good enough, but that in Jesus we are loved. God, we pray that this would be a truth which we hold on to for our lives, that we grasp this, that we fight for this, and that we don't let this go. God, we know that our world is telling us to find our value and our worth in what we do. But we want to stop this morning and just recognize that those efforts are futile, that they don't deal with the problem and that they don't deliver. And so we want to run back to the fact that in Jesus we are loved, we are cared for, we are valued. And as we recognize this, we can hold on to what our true value is and we can have this sense of worth, recognizing that the God of the universe sees completely what we are like and loves us enough to go to the cross for us. Help us hold on to this truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.